Acts chapter 26. I want us to meditate this morning on one of Paul's speeches. And it's his defense that he gives before King Agrippa. It's in Acts 26. Uh, Spoiler alert. It's all about the resurrected Jesus. Let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you again for your word. And thank you so much for letting us come to it. God, I give you praise that you didn't didn't just leave us to the wisdom of men. And you didn't leave us to just sermons from men. But you gave us your word. And I I give you praise, God. We give you praise that we get to read your word. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would do a mighty work to conform us more and more to Christ, to move our hearts to see and adore Christ. God, please do your work through your word this morning. We love you, Lord, and we express dependence on you. We need your help. Thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 26, let me say a few things about the setting of this speech from Paul before we read, begin, begin to read it. Um, Paul has been arrested, and he's been arrested and detained for a long time at this point in the book of Acts. Um, there's a man named Festus, Governor Festus, another governing authority named King Agrippa. And the plan at this moment is to take the prisoner Paul and to send him to Caesar, to be judged by Caesar. And we don't have to get into all the, uh, the ways that we got to that point, but that's the plan, send Paul to Caesar to be judged. Now Festus, after Governor Festus, after hearing everything that, that's gone down, he doesn't know what charges to send. So if he's going to send a prisoner to Caesar, he needs to send them with some sort of charges that, you know, th- these are the charges being brought against this man. But he doesn't know what to, to send Paul, uh, what charges to send Paul with to Caesar. So he grabs King Agrippa and he gets counsel essentially from King Agrippa. King Agrippa, can you help me know what charges to send uh, Paul to Caesar with? So I want to read this to you from Acts 25, just still thinking about the setting here. This is one of the things that Festus, Governor Festus, says to King Agrippa to try to get him to understand the situation. This is Acts 25. I'm going to read verse 18 and 19. Festus says, When the accusers stood up, he's talking about the accusers against Paul. He was listening to this whole situation. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Think about it. They want this man's head. Surely they're going to say he's a murderer, he's a thief, he's something. But he says says to King Agrippa, King Agrippa, they didn't bring the charges that I thought they would bring. Verse 19. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. 
and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Now, I love that phrase. And if you know me well, you know that I love that phrase. This Paul, what's his problem? What, are they, what charges are they bringing against Paul? Well, mainly it's this. There's this man, Jesus, who's dead, who Paul keeps asserting is alive. He keeps saying the dead man is alive. And I love that phrase. And I give you two reasons I love it. One, I think it corrects some bad thinking today about the resurrection of Christ. People oftentimes tend to think about the resurrection of Jesus as if it's just merely a past event that happened. Now, it is a glorious, the, 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 the most glorious of past events that happened, but it's not merely a past event. The fact that he rose means he's still alive right now. And Paul in his life, he knows that. This dead man, he keeps, what, what's his problem? He, well, this dead man, Jesus, he keeps asserting that he's alive. He's resurrected and alive. He's living. So it corrects that error. I think it also, number two, it teaches us something about the Christian life. Uh, the Christian life is not just rules and regulations. It's not just you and a standard, you and a law. But, but it's about Christ, this risen one. It's you knowing Jesus, you walking with Jesus. The one who's not dead. Who Paul says, and he keeps asserting it, is alive. And when you believe that, and, and again, that, that affects the Christian life. When you believe that, when you understand that, you see that, it affects everything about your life. Christ Jesus is resurrected and living. It's all about this dead man, Jesus, who he keeps saying is alive. Now, uh, Festus is saying this to King Agrippa. King Agrippa agrees, sure, I'll, I'll help you out here, but I want to hear this man. I want to hear Paul. I want to hear what he has to say. And that's what we have in Acts 26 as uh, really Paul's third def de uh, defense that he gives as he's detained, as he's arrested. It's his longest defense that he gives. And some commentators call this the climax of, of the book of Acts here. So what we have, we're going to read through this, Acts 26, and we're going to start, just kind of read it in sections, verses 1 through 11. So if you look at verse 1 through 11 of Acts 26, this is what he's going to give you here is he's going to explain before King Agrippa his life before Christ. So before he had an encounter with the risen Christ, the risen Jesus, the living Jesus, he, began, he explains his life here in the first 11 verses. So look at it. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. So here it is. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews 
They have known for a long time that they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our, our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope I'm accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, plain sense of the beginning of this speech, first 11 verses here, uh, Paul starts off by expressing thankfulness that he gets to defend his case or give his defense here before King Agrippa. He begins to tell King Agrippa, King Agrippa, this is what I've been like from my youth. All the Jews know this. That's a phrase there. All the Jews know this if they're willing to testify that I've lived as a Pharisee, the strictest order of the Jews I lived as a Pharisee and then he makes it clear in verse 6 and 7 and following the reason that he's being persecuted in verse 6 he makes it clear the reason that he's on trial the reason he's being persecuted and it's all about this hope in the resurrection hope in the resurrection look at verse 6 and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Now, what is that hope? I want to read. He said something earlier about this in Acts 23, verse 6. Listen to this. Now, when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Because I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope, and listen, the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So this hope... He says, I'm being persecuted, I'm, I'm on trial because of this hope, is a hope about the resurrection. Verse 8, that's why he asked this question. What a great question. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? Acts 26, 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So think about that. What does Agrippa already know about Paul? Here's this man, Jesus has died, and this man keeps saying that he's alive. And then he asks this question, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This is going somewhere, and it's obvious where it's going. 
And then, towards the end of these first 11 verses, Paul begins to describe what his life was like and the way that he opposed Jesus, the way that he opposed anyone that followed Jesus before he had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Now, I want you to think about how horrible these things are. What kind of horrible, wicked, evil things did this man do? Look at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He, at this point, he thought Jesus is dead, and I want to wipe his name. I want to, I want to take the memory of his name away from these people. I want to oppose the name of Christ. Look how wicked, verse 10. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Not only did I rip them from their families and throw them into a prison, but I was a part of their murder, the unjust murder of these innocent people. When they were killed, I cast my vote against them. Look at verse 11. And I punished them so unjust. I punished them often, he says. I did this a lot. In all the synagogues, synagogue after synagogue, believer in Christ, follower of Christ, punish them. And I tried to make them blaspheme. I tried to make them deny this one, to deny Christ, to get his name out of their mouth. I tried to make them blaspheme. And look at this, and in, and in verse 11, and in raging fury, he's so angry. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. His anger caused him to go to foreign cities just to punish these people, to drag them into prison and be a part of their murder. Really important question. Can a man like this be saved? Can a man such as this be saved? And as we keep reading, we get an answer to that. But I want to go to another place in Scripture. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1. Listen to God's Word. Can a man like this, a wicked man like this, be saved? 1 Timothy 1.13. Paul says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I, listen to it, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed, overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Wicked man, grace of God overflows toward him. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He says, I'm the worst. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost. And Christ Jesus came to save people like me. But I received mercy for this reason. Why? Why would God save such a man? That in me, as the foremost, as the worst of sinners, 
that in me, as, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He can save a man like Paul, that wicked man. He can save someone like you. The resurrected Jesus, the living one, went to the deepest, darkest corners at the cross to drag out the worst of sinners. And we see that clearly in Paul's life. Now, that's his life before his encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Now, verse 12 through 18, back in Acts 26, verse 12 through 18, Paul's going to describe this, this interaction he has, this encounter he has with Christ resurrected. Let's read it. Look at verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, in this encounter that Paul has with the resurrected Jesus, what was he doing? What was he in the middle of doing? Verse 12, well, he was doing, he was doing the thing he just admitted to. In raging fury, he was hunting down Christians into foreign cities. He was on a journey to Damascus so he could drag Christians to jail and be a part of their murder. That's what he was in the middle of doing. And what did Paul see? What did he see? Verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw, here's what he saw, on the way, a light from heaven. So it's at midday. The sun is shining in full strength, but he sees a light that comes barging in that it says here is brighter than the sun. And it shone around me and all those that were journeying with me. And, and, uh, and this phrase, and when we had all fallen to the ground, this light shines brighter than the sun that drops everybody. Everybody's on their back or on their face. And this is a reminder to us of the power and the glory and the majesty of the resurrected Jesus. We're not talking about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We're talking about the Revelation chapter 1, Jesus, the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and his face is like the sun, it says. 
and he shows up here and he, he appears to Paul and these other people and everybody falls down. And as we know in other places, Paul is blinded by this glorious revelation of Christ. That's what he saw. What did he hear? Well, again, if you look here in verse 14, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What an amazing moment. Can you, can you imagine that moment? All of a sudden, he's on his way to persecute Christians, and the one whose name that he wants to eradicate from the land, he shows up and he speaks to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Beautiful truth there, that to attack the church is to attack Christ, to, to persecute God's people is to persecute Christ. Jesus says, why are you, Paul, persecuting me? You're persecuting my people. You're persecuting me. Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. To oppose Jesus is like kicking against the goads. Think of a goad like a, like a cattle prod. A sharp object moving you in a certain direction. To oppose Jesus, you're just hurting yourself. You're just kicking against the goads here. And Paul asks a question, and you can tell he's already humbled. Verse 15, and I said, remember he's on, he's on, the, he's on the ground. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? The appearance of Christ has humbled this wicked man. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus gives an answer in verse 15 through 18. So the rest of this section, verse 15 through 18, is Jesus' answer or response to Paul here. And I want, to, I want us to break down this response. If you look at verse 15, Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And imagine how that landed on him. The one whose name I want to rid from the land. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then verse 16, he commands him to get up. Look at it. But rise and stand upon your feet. Paul, get up. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up. He makes him stand up right here. And then he tells him in the rest of this passage the purpose for his appearing. In other words, why has Jesus appeared to Paul here? Why did he, he show up? Why did he show himself in his resurrected state? Why? And he gives him the reason. And it's number one, to appoint him. And number two, to send him. To appoint him. Look again at verse 16. But rise and stand up upon your feet, for I've appeared to you, I have appeared to you for this purpose. Here's the reason I've appeared to you, Paul, for this purpose. To appoint you. To appoint you as what? As a servant. Now we've sanitized that word too much. As a slave. Can you imagine how that lands? The one, G, Paul, Paul's thinking, the Jesus who I hate in raging fury. I hate this man and I want to get rid of all of his followers. And he shows up and he hits his back and he's humbled. And he says, I'm here to appoint you as my slave. And what else? 
and a witness. I'm here to appoint you as a witness to the things in which you have seen me. So I'm here to appoint you as a witness to the things you've seen. That's an eyewitness. Now again, think about that. Acts 25, 19. This Paul, you know, Jesus is dead and this Paul keeps asserting that he's alive. Acts 26, verse 8. Why do you think it incredible that God can raise the dead? And what is he doing right here? He's given his eyewitness testimony. I saw him. I saw him risen from the dead. I thought he was dead. I hated him. I hated his followers. But I saw him risen, resurrected. I saw him. And so he's sharing his eyewitness account here. Now, not only does he show up to Paul to appoint him, but also to send him. Look at verse 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. I'm sending you. Jesus, who are you sending him to? He's sending him to people like us. Not just to his people, but also to Gentiles like us. And he's sending, he's sending Paul to do what? Look at it. Look at verse 18. To open their eyes so that they might turn. And it, and it goes on. He's sending, the, he's sending him to, to go to people like us and open their eyes to, to show them salvation, to, to bring them to deliverance for rescue. What will you do with the eyewitness testimony of Paul the Apostle? What will you do with it? He says, I saw him. The one who came, the one who died, he's risen. How do you know? I, I saw him. What will you do with this testimony? Jesus has come. As 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He has died. He, he died a, a death in your place. A, a, a death where he takes the wrath of God for you. He takes your punishment away. He's risen from the dead. He's still alive right now. What will you do with that testimony? That eyewitness account. If you reject it, if you ignore it, act like it doesn't exist, then, then you remain in darkness. You remain under Satan. You remain unforgiven. And you're hellbound. There's no hope without Christ. But if you receive this testimony and you turn to Christ, look again at verse 18, this beautiful description of conversion. This is, this is what conversion is like. To open their eyes that they might turn from darkness to light. Praise God. And from the power of Satan, not under His rule, but to God under His rule that they might receive forgiveness of sins. The record of your sins wiped completely away because Christ Jesus paid for them all. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And that's at the root of it all. Do you have faith in Christ truly? And if so, you're given a place among all those others that are set apart, sanctified, set apart, by faith in Christ, forgiven of sin, from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God. What will you do with this testimony, this eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Christ? 
Now this next section, verse 19 through 23, Acts 26, verse 19 through 23. Now we get a glimpse into Paul's life after this encounter with the resurrected Jesus. So he encounters the resurrected Christ, and now we see his life after that. He's explaining all this to King Agrippa. Let's read it. Look at verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now I want us to consider this, these verses from this angle. What does a person's life look like after an, after an encounter with the resurrected Jesus? Now everybody who has ever been saved has had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Now I don't mean that in the exact same way that Paul has it here. This is certainly unique. This is Paul, the apostle, an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. It's a unique situation. And yet every person that's ever been saved has had a real encounter with the resurrected Christ. It looks like conviction of sin. Well, the Holy Spirit helps you see that you need Christ. You need saving because what you deserve is eternal damnation. And then you, your spiritual understanding is open. Your eyes are open to see the glories of Christ. He's a Savior. He's a rescuer. And you need Him. And He's there for salvation. He's glorious. And then you turn. You turn away from your life and, and, and your own ways and your sin and you turn to Christ and He saves your soul from hell. It's an encounter with Christ, the risen Christ. And I want us to look at this passage from that angle. What does this passage tell us about life after an encounter with the resurrected Jesus? What does it tell us about the Christian life? And I'll mention six things from this, from this little paragraph. Six things. Number one, the Christian life is a life of obedience. Look at it in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. It's not a perfect life. Christian life is not a perfect life, but it is a life of obedience. 1 John 2, 3, and 4 says that this you know that you, that you know him, that you keep his commandments. If somebody says, I know him, and then doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth's not in him. It's a life of obedience because God changes the heart. Number two, in the Christian life, they, Christians care about the mission of God. Look at it in verse 20. That's what Paul did. But I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. They care about the mission. Christians care about this stuff. How could you be saved and not care about other people's souls if they're saved or not? 
Number three, Christian life is not an easy life. Look at verse 21. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. They seized me. They tried to kill me. He had an encounter with the resurrected Christ, and it didn't lead to ease. People are trying to kill him. People are throwing him into jail. If you desire to follow Christ, you will be persecuted. It won't be easy. Jesus made that clear. He said, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It's not a life of ease. Number four, the Christian life is marked by the help of God. I love this phrase in verse 22. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to small and great. I've had the help that comes from God. I love that phrase. Jesus said this in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But Christian, you're not apart from him. You're not apart from him. You have, because Christ is risen, he's alive, he's by your side, you have the help that comes from God. Number five, Christian life is a life that values Scripture. Look at verse 22. So I stand here testifying both the small and great. Listen to this phrase. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. The stuff in my mouth is just the stuff that Moses and the prophets said. The things I'm preaching, the things I'm talking about, the things that matter to me are just stuff that I read about in the Scriptures that Moses and the prophets said. Christian life is a life that values Scripture. Christians are not self-confident. They're Scripture-confident. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. It's not your own understanding. It's to trust in the Lord by looking at His Word. I trust what He says, not what I think. And lastly, number six, Christian life treasures the gospel. Look at verse 23. This is what Moses and the prophets were saying, that the Christ must suffer. The sufferings of Jesus. This is at the heart of the gospel, the sufferings of Jesus the Christ. Moses and the prophets said it was going to come, that he would come and be wounded for our transgressions. He would suffer. He would be crushed for our sins. He would suffer. And his suffering wasn't like anyone else's suffering. He suffered and died in the place of other people. He didn't deserve it. We deserve it. And it's not just physical suffering. It's the wrath, the, the punishment, the holy anger of God that's supposed to be poured out on sinners in hell forever. And he absorbs it at the cross. Praise to, the, praise to our God. Christ's suffering, and you keep going here in verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead. What does it speak when he's the resurrection of Christ? What does it say? By being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim it's a proclamation of light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The resurrection. Jesus said at the cross, it's finished at the resurrection. It's that amen. It's finished indeed. It's done. And it's light to the whole world for those that would come to Christ. This man's obsessed 
He's obsessed with the sufferings of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. He treasures, he treasures the gospel. Now the last part of this passage, or really his, Paul's speech is done. I, I, it seems like, I don't know that he was fully done. It seems like he was close to being done. But as he comes to the end of this speech and he's speaking to King Agrippa, he gets, uh, he gets rudely interrupted here in verse 24. Look at verse 24. We're going to read the verse 29 and listen to the, the interruption of the speech here. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul! You're out of your mind. And your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this, this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, well, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. That's the interruption now, why did Festus say what he said in verse 24? He, he essentially says, Paul, he interrupts him. As Paul is speaking, he interrupts him and he essentially says, Paul, you're crazy. You're nuts. You've lost your mind. Your learning's driving you mad. What's wrong with you? You're crazy, Paul. What, what made Festus say that about Paul? Well, think about it. What, what has Festus said from the very beginning? Paul thinks that a dead man, a dead man is resurrected, and not just resurrected, but, but alive. Resurrected and alive. And now Paul's bearing witness to, let me tell you when I, when I saw him, let me tell you when I, when I had this encounter with the resurrected one, yes, he's still alive, and and. and Festus is saying, you're crazy. Now this is a central, I hope you know this, I know, I know most of you know this, this is a central Christian claim, right? That the man who lived 2,000 years ago was not a normal man. Jesus was not a normal man. He, he was a man, no doubt, so that he could die. But he's the Son of God, God Almighty, who takes on human flesh, becomes a man in order to rescue us. So, so he's not a normal man, and his death was not a normal death. Many people have been crucified. There was a man crucified to the right of Jesus and a man crucified to the left of Jesus, but that death was not a normal death. It was a substitution. He was dying in your place. It wasn't just physical. He was taking the punishment for his people. He was taking the holy anger of God. It's not a normal death. And how do we know all that's true? He's risen from the dead. It's finished. Amen. It's finished indeed. He's alive. Now we're all called to follow this Christ, this living 
Savior. We're called to follow Him. And if you're going to follow Him, listen to me, you need to count the cost. You need to count the cost. Because the world, like Festus looks at Paul, the whole world will think you're nuts. You're crazy. The center of your claim is that a dead man is still alive. Count the cost. They'll think you're crazy. Now, how does Paul respond? I love Paul's response here. There's really three things that he sort of appeals to. If you look at verse 25, first Paul appeals to truth and reason. Look at what he says. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. True and and rational. So the things that I'm saying align with Scripture, that's truth, and just the facts of the situation, it's reasonable, it's rational. I'm speaking true and rational words. And he's about to show that as he points to the prophets. That's the true word, Scripture. And he points to the fact that this was done in a public setting. This is not unreasonable. I'm giving you true and rational words. Now look at the second thing he does. He appeals to that reasonable peace, that rational peace. In verse 26, he appeals to the public nature of these events. Look at it in verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. This was not, his life was not a private life. In a private death that nobody knows about, in a private burial, and they're making some claim that nobody can disprove or prove. It's not some private thing done in the corner. This was done in the public square. This was done under public scrutiny. And he's telling them this here, I know, I know you've seen this. These claims are under public scrutiny. Now that's the thing. If, if you remember back in chapter 25, remember Festus said, a certain Jesus who's dead, who Paul attests to be alive. The next line in verse 20, 25 verse 20 says, being at a loss of how to investigate these questions. <laughs> so Festus goes, I, I don't know, Agrippa, can you help me? I don't know how to investigate these things. It's not that hard to investigate these things. It was done in public. It's not a secret thing. There are eyewitnesses. If it didn't happen, it can be disproved. It's in the capital city. Jesus lived a famous life and they, uh, died a famous death and a famous burial. So how do I investigate these things? Go look at the empty tomb. Nobody's in there. No, isn't that the tomb they put him in? Yeah, can I get some eyewitnesses? Yep, that's the tomb he put him in. Why is the body not there? Then you have soldiers guarding that thing? Why is the body of Jesus not there? Why is the tomb empty? Go talk to the eyewitnesses. You mean they said they saw the resurrected Jesus? You mean they said they saw him resurrected? Peter said it. 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 brethren at once, they would attest to these things. Go investigate. These things were done in a court corner. They were under public scrutiny. Agrippa, Agrippa, I know you've seen these things. And so then last, Paul appeals to the prophets. And that's your scripture piece there, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? King Agrippa, this is, I'm telling you rational things. I'm telling you reasonable things. Like, the tomb is empty. Eyewitness accounts. I'm telling you these things. And don't you know, like, this lines up with what the prophet said. 
Didn't the prophet say that a Messiah was going to come? And it says that when that Messiah comes, he would die for the sin of his people, Isaiah 53. But didn't it also say that he would reign as king forever? He would never stop reigning as king. How do these, how do these two things go together, Agrippa? How do they go together? Except that he died for the sins of his people, risen from the dead to live forever as king. So don't you believe the prophets? Now, last thing I want to mention here. What, what, are the, what are Paul's intentions as he's laying all this out? He's talking about his life before he encountered Christ, his encounter with the resurrected Jesus, his life after that. He gets interrupted. He's talking to King Agrippa here. He's dealing with the interruption. And, and in all of this, what are his intentions? Is he just trying to get out of jail? Is he just sucking up so he can get a favorable judgment here? And the answer is no. And I think you see that clearly in verse 28 and 29. Actually, I want to back up to verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. What does that phrase mean? What are Paul's intentions here? What's, when he says that, I, I know, I know. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He's, he's, try, he's trying to draw him to something. Look, look at it. Look at Agrippa's response. And Agrippa said to, said to Paul, in a short time, would, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian, Paul? You know, and the modern day answer would be, oh, no, 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 I'm just giving you my perspective. I'm not trying to persuade anybody. That's not what Paul says. Look, he says, Agrippa says, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, whether short or long, <laughs> I would to God that not only you, but everybody else hearing me right now would be like me as a Christian except for these chains. Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Yeah, not just you, but everybody else listening to me right now. I'm trying to persuade all y'all. What's his intentions? To persuade you to follow and adore this Christ, the resurrected one. So anybody here today, if you are an unbeliever, and, and whether that means you're, you're, you just flat out reject Christ, or you're a nominal believer, meaning you, you, know, you would give lip service, but the reality is, is you, you don't know him. Um, maybe that's evident by your life. If that's you, you're an unbeliever here today, listen to me. Be persuaded by the eyewitness testimony of Paul the Apostle right here. He's saying these things to persuade Agrippa and you. Think about what Christ has done. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, a righteous life. He died your death, crucified in your place. Absorb the wrath of God for you. Risen from the dead under public scrutiny. So it's, it's even reasonable that you would look at it and go, that man's risen from the dead. I just believe him. I trust him. Be persuaded. And don't go your own way. Come to Christ. If you reject it, if you, if you neglect to do this, listen to me. You remain in darkness. You remain under Satan. You remain unforgiven. And you're hellbound. But what did verse 18 say? 
I'm sending you, Paul, to open their eyes. Don't be blind anymore. Open their eyes that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and a place, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, come to Christ. Be persuaded by these things. Am I trying to persuade you? Yes. Absolutely. And to everyone here who's already in Christ, you're already a believer, I want you to be reminded, do not forget this, that you serve a living Savior. Your Christianity is not just rules and regulations, just you and a standard. God's standards are there and they're glorious, beautiful, holy standards. But it's not just you and the standard, it's you and a living Savior. You have the help that comes from God if you're in Christ. You have that. Wow, because he's He's not dead. He's resurrected and he's alive and he knows every thought in the room right now. The living Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again that we can Read your word and meditate on your word together. And I pray, God, that you would help us. God, if there are any lost souls here this morning, I pray that they would experience an encounter with you, resurrected Lord Jesus. God, if they're prideful, please humble them. The way you put Paul on his back and cause them to cry out, Who are you, Lord? God, I pray that you would humble them. You would help them see, let them, let them experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit to see their need for a Savior. Don't let them be blind. Don't let them be numb to these things. But God, I pray you'd save their souls. Bring them out of darkness and into light. Give them the forgiveness of sins, Lord, please. Lift up your name as a God of salvation in this place. And Lord, I pray for every every child of yours here, every son, every daughter, Lord, that you would cause us to be a people that, are, that could be marked by that phrase, Lord. The world thinks he's dead, but Lord Jesus, you're alive. And I pray we'd be marked by that, Lord, that we serve a living Savior. We love you, Lord. We commit this time to you. God, change our hearts. Help us, Lord. Thank you for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.